We'll start with this evening. We're going to look at Acts chapter 15. Somewhat lengthy reading here as we'll read Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. This is the account of the first synod or council of the church, known as the Jerusalem Council. Known to history as that. And the only council that we can say because it had apostolic authority in its presence was an infallible council. As we're going to see tonight, we, we understand that councils, church councils are helpful, but they can and do err. They do make errors on occasion, sometimes more, sometimes less. And so uh, here we read of the first council. It sets, sets the precedent uh, both for more general councils of the church and also for uh, the connectionalism of the church which we have in a Presbyterian system of church government whereby each congregation is a part of a larger body where churches are held accountable and that the decisions of elders are uh, implemented and, and, uh, and authoritative throughout all the churches. So let's read God's word here in Acts chapter 15. This is Luke's account of the Jerusalem Council. Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit here. He did gather this as a good historian, information from eyewitnesses, but he writes this infallibly. And so let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Acts 15 verses 1 through 35. And certain men came down from Judea, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversions of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by, his, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, 
and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men from among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May we briefly pray. Lord, we do pray indeed now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, that this reading of your word and this sermon might be used for you for the strengthening of the brethren. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this series of sermons we've been in for the last many months, we've noted that it's, of course, titled, What Presbyterians Believe. Uh, In that title, I've used the term Presbyterian in the broader theological sense. Uh, That is, I'm, I'm referring to churches that typically have Presbyterian in their name, uh, hold to what is known as the as Reformed theological teachings, and of course, in particular, to the Westminster Standards, because we've been going through the topics covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But Presbyterian, of course, has a more basic meaning that refers to the form of church government that we are under. And uh, we came to be called Presbyterians more commonly uh, around the time of the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The term was already used quite a bit in in Scotland, for example, as the Church of Scotland was reformed and they determined they would be a Presbyterian church. But uh, 
but in, in particular at the Westminster Assembly, you had, in terms of people arguing for different forms of church government, there were various views. There were Episcopals, Episcopalians, people who wanted an Episcopal form of church government. There were Congregationalists. There were Presbyterians. There were also some Erastians, that is, people who thought the state should govern the church. But uh, so Presbyterian then has this particular basic meaning that has to do with a church government. The church historian R.C. Reed, whose book on Presbyterianism I read many years ago, pointed out that, that uh, most everywhere the church has been free to determine its own polity, its own form of church government. It has looked at the scriptures and concluded that it should be Presbyterian. We can point even to the last century in America when uh, some groups like, for example, the Assemblies of God uh, formed as a denomination and um, though we would strongly disagree with other viewpoints that they have, uh, we would have to say that one thing they seem to get right is when they look to the scriptures to, to see, well, how should we govern the church? They basically came up with a form of government that is Presbyterian, even though they wouldn't call it that, or they don't call themselves Presbyterians. They're certainly not Reformed in their theology. Historically, most churches holding to Reformed theology, though, have been Presbyterian in government. And that includes, of course, every denomination with Presbyterian in its name, as well as churches like the Dutch Reformed churches, and the German Reformed, and the Swiss Reformed, and the French Huguenots, the French Reformed. Uh, all the churches that they've founded around the world, these have been, uh, by and large, Presbyterian in government. Some Reformed churches have determined, rather, to have congregational church governments, of course, the Congregationalists would be obviously one. Um, and uh, then, of course, uh, those who came out of that movement who are now Baptists, so we might call Reformed Baptists, uh, they uh, have a congregational form of church government. Uh, of course, the traditional Anglicans, Episcopalians, who stick to the 39 Articles of Faith could be argued that they are, they are confessionally, in some sense, Reformed, they're theologically reformed, but they have an Episcopal form of church government. Uh, so those are really the three basic forms of church government, though, that we find throughout church history. There's Congregational, Episcopal, and Presbyterian. The Congregational churches are more or less independent. Uh, they you know, govern, essentially, they're governed by the vote of the congregation or by uh, local church officers, elders, who are chosen by the congregation with little or no oversight from anyone outside of the local church. Sometimes they have connectional, somewhat connectional conventions like the Southern Baptist Convention. And, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, though, can't remove elders from a particular church, change its church officers or anything like that. They can just say, they can just determine whether or not that particular congregation is meeting the standards of being in the Southern Baptist Convention and kick them out if they don't like what they're doing. But, uh, but they don't really have much weight and force in their oversight. So uh, think of the Pilgrims who settled in colonial Massachusetts, colonial Plymouth Colony, and then the Puritans who settled Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Baptists in Rhode Island. Uh, those would be all congregational in their church government. Episcopal churches have bishops, and I'll say that in quotes, bishops, because technically we have bishops too. We have uh, episcopoi, the, the, the episcopos of the 
the New Testament is another term. It means overseer, another term simply for elders. But in an Episcopal church, the bishop is a title given particularly to someone who is sort of like a regional governor of many congregations and often has the power to appoint officers in the local congregation. Uh, So uh, think of the Methodists, Lutherans, Anglicans. uh, They all have an Episcopal form of church government as well as the the Roman and Eastern Orthodox so-called churches. They they have uh, Episcopal forms of church government. Presbyterian churches are quite different. They're governed by presbyters, that is, elders. Presbyter is the, the, the Greek word, presbyteros, it means elder. And there, are, of course, are ruling elders and teaching elders, as we see in 1 Timothy 5.17, right, for example, that, that we know that the elder who rules well uh, is worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching. And so there we see that some make their living by preaching and teaching, but all who rule well are worthy of double honor. So all elders have authority. Some of them make their living, as it were, by preaching and teaching. And that's, but they're all elders. And a government, church government by elders, is Presbyterian to that extent. And But it takes a little bit more. We make a distinction between congregational and Presbyterian. The congregationalists may have elders in their local church, but those elders aren't accountable to any broader church government. In a Presbyterian form of church government, they are. Uh, The presbyters meet in synods and councils. Uh, Locally, each congregation has its session, or if you're from the continental Reformed churches, the Dutch Reformed, German Reformed, and so on, uh, it might be called a consistory. Uh, The distinction between a consistory and a session is this. A session means those who sit together, and a consistory means those who sit together. So there's actually no difference. It's just different words meaning the same thing. The local group of elders from the congregation. God has given authority to the local church to choose its elders, and those elders then exercise the authority of Christ in the church. The sessions, consistories then will uh, send their elders to a broader church court representing many congregations, usually in a particular region. We would call that a presbytery, or the continentals would call it a classis. More than one presbytery uh, usually is said to make up a synod, or sometimes a general assembly, or sometimes a church is large enough it'll have several synods and a general assembly. And that's usually as big as it gets. With all those options... We have to ask the question, do we embrace this Presbyterian form of church government just because it's what was convenient for us? Some take that attached. Some even in the Presbyterian family of churches take that position that, well, it's okay to have a variety of types of church governments. This is just the one that we think works best for us. But you'll notice if you've been around when a an elder has been ordained, you'll notice that the elder in his ordination vows says that he agrees that the Presbyterian form of church government is the permanent form of church government. That is that we believe in the RP church that that this is the form of church government revealed in scripture and so every church should be Presbyterian in terms of how it governs itself. So we submit to this form of church government because we believe it's appointed in God's word. 
Westminster Confession says the same thing. It says, For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or, or councils. And it then says, As magistrates may lawfully call a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with about matters of religion, so if magistrates be open enemies to the church, the ministers of Christ of themselves, by virtue of their office, or they with other fit persons upon delegation from their churches, may meet together in such assemblies. Now that second part there I read to you, I read before moving on here, because in our RP testimony we've rejected that paragraph. Uh, we understand that the church has the power of the keys, the civil magistrate does not. The civil magistrate has the right to ask the advice of the church, but cannot compel the church council to meet. And so, uh, this is the, uh, the, the, what's in that first paragraph really is of, uh, of note to us this evening. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. When a question of doctrine and practice has to be settled, the church needs to come together in a broader council. So we see connectionalism there. When we saw that in Acts 15, there was a question of doctrine and of practice. Paul and Barnabas were with the church in Antioch, in Syria, and some people came down from Jerusalem, as Paul says in Galatians, they claim to be coming from James, though we can see in the Jerusalem Council, James doesn't take their position by any means. And they claim you have to be circumcised to be saved, essentially. You have to be holding to the Old Testament ceremonial law or you can't be saved. And Paul has been teaching otherwise, and Paul and Barnabas argue against this, and that to settle the matter, they don't simply just say, well, Paul could say, well, I'm an apostle of Jesus, listen to me. But what he does is he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas and with others from the Antioch church. And the way that that's spoken of, it sounds like it's elders from the Antioch church. And they go and they meet in Jerusalem with the apostles and elders there. So notice the apostles don't simply, they could have quite easily simply said, here, by apostolic authority, Jesus has told us this is the way it's to go, this is the way it's going to be. But instead, they met in this council, and they set this precedent of the church being governed by elders, and those elders are not independent. In 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul reminds Timothy of his ordination when he says, the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, that's probably referring more to a local session, as we would call it, but the, the word that he uses there literally is presbytery. Presbyterium in Greek. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 5 through 9 give specific qualifications for those who are called to eldership. Paul uses the term overseer, or episkopos, from which we get our word bishop in 1 Timothy. It says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. That literally means an overseer. And remember in Acts 20, Paul calls the elders of the church at Ephesus overseers and uses the terms interchangeably. He says here, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, 
For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into some into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, I'm not going to go into all of what that means. Lord willing, we're going to, to preach through First Timothy coming up here, and we'll, we'll hear more in detail when we get there what that means. But we see there that there are spiritual qualifications for eldership. And though Paul uses the term bishop there, or overseer, episkopos in Greek, in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, we see essentially the same qualifications where Paul uses the term elder. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders. Notice that plural, elders, in every city as I commanded you. So every city, every congregation should have plural elders. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop, so the overseer, the bishop, is the same thing as the elder, must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So some qualifications for elders there. We see that it is mostly spiritual and character qualifications, and uh, that the elder is the bishop, so there, there isn't a, a any sense in which a bishop is some regional governor of the church, nor nor is there to be one on his own in the local congregation. There are to be multiple plural elders. So there we're talking about a Presbyterian form of church government when we put that together with the fact that there is a when a council of elders comes together, their decision, as we saw in Acts 15, is binding on all the churches. So it's clear that in obedience to Christ, the apostles set up a church government by elders and did not leave local congregations on their own to be independent and do whatever they pleased apart from what the other churches had to say. Rather, they were to be connected, uh, ever uh, ever uh, uh, connected through a formal connection, we should say. They should be overseen, and, and they should be counseling one another to ensure sound doctrine, to settle disputes, to decide disciplinary cases, as we saw in Acts 15. So the confession says, It belongeth to synods and councils ministerially, that is, servants of the church, to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration. So, if an elder abuses his authority, well, there's, there are broader courts of the church that can hear that complaint. So to receive complaints in case of maladministration and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission. This is, by the way, why in our covenant of community membership we say that we submit to the church government in, to, in the Lord. So in the church government, if the church government were to do something unbiblical, we're not required to submit to that. So it's if it's consonant with the word of God is what the confession says. 
If they are consonant with the word of God, they are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. In other words, God has appointed that the church be governed by elders, and when these elders are meeting in council, that council needs to be taken seriously. Notice, though, it has to be God's word by which they make their judgments, not human whim or preferences of the culture. And when a church council does such a thing, then it needs to be corrected and not obeyed. Ephesians 2.20 tells us, The true church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. As it, it's a, at its most basic and plain meaning, that scripture means, among other things, that, it, that the church has to be biblical. But when consonant with God's word, the decisions of the church courts are binding as we saw in Acts 15. So we have to keep in mind, as the confession says, all synods or councils since the apostles' time, whether general or particular, may err, or err, if you prefer to say it that way. I always think it sounds strange when someone says it that way, though I think that's technically the correct pronunciation. And many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. So the Westminster Confession itself is not to be considered a rule of faith and practice, certainly not an infallible rule, but it's to be used as a help in both. 1 Corinthians 2.5 says our faith must not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In Acts 17.11, the Bereans, when Paul came to them, tested everything that Paul told them by the scriptures. That's appropriate. So church councils being made up of fallible men can make mistakes. Truth isn't determined by a majority vote. But what we trust is that if the church is doing its job right, if the Council of Elders is doing its job right, the more who are studying Scripture together come to a, a, a general understanding together of what the Scriptures are, are telling us, what they're binding us to, then we see that, that when done right, the church courts are helping us better to understand Scripture and apply it. They can't teach us against Scripture, but they help us to understand Scripture. They can make mistakes, and so we have to be constantly testing what we teach and practice against the standard of Scripture. Now, you might recall in our study of the, the rule of Christ that he has given certain powers to civil governments and separate authority to the church officers. The church cannot become the state, and the state cannot become the church. Those are... Uh, one is not to rule over the other, so the confession cautions us. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary. Alongside of this, by the way, our testimony does say that we need to preach God's truth to the state. This isn't abrogating that. But the confession says, or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. So if the civil magistrate asks for the church's advice, the church can advise, and the church should be commenting on matters that are ecclesiastical that the state is dealing with, matters that are under the purview of the church. Morality. What does God say is right or wrong? Uh, the church has every right to tell the state those things. 
The church would have the right, for example, to tell the state that it is immoral to rob from the rich and give to the poor, so to speak, right? or to, to confiscate one person's goods in order to distribute them to others, especially to buy votes. That is immoral. That's just state-sanctioned theft. And the church has every right to say, don't do that. But whether when a state's deciding, well, will our sales tax be 6% or 7%, the church doesn't really have anything to say about that. and doesn't need to, to comment on that. Matthew 22, verse 21, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. We find in Scripture that Christ determined to govern his church through elders, though. And we see plainly as we read the letters of Paul to Timothy and Titus that these elders rule. Some of them teach in the church. All of them are to be able to teach. Some of them make their living by it, essentially. Uh, we also see that each congregation has elders, plural, who oversee them. And we see that the local elders are not autonomous, but that presbyteries, synods, councils, made up of elders from various churches, oversee and advise each other enforcing biblical teaching. Uh, in essence, the principle is this. Christ gave his authority to the church. The church chooses elders to exercise that authority. The more elders that are present, the more authority there is. That's basically the way that it works. We find that this church government is not to become the state. And it's not to rule over the civil state. Nor is the civil state to become the church nor rule over the church in matters of doctrine and practice. One, is, one version is called prelacy, the other is called Erastianism, uh, and neither of those is to be the case. This is one of the many complaints that the church had against, the, the reformers had against the papacy, was that the pope had also become an earthly prince. And that was not to be. And they had the same uh, kind of problem, sort of just flipping the, the coin over to the other side, with someone like Henry VIII where the civil governor had made himself the head of the church. But in short, we see that Christ has commanded and established a Presbyterian form of church government. And so this is the form of church government that should be embraced and that we all ought to encourage our Christian brothers and sisters to embrace. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you for establishing and revealing to us the means by which you rule the church through elders. Bless, we pray, those who are the under-shepherds under Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, those who oversee the local churches and do so under the great overseer of our souls, those who rule and teach under him, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth belongs. For we pray in the name of Christ Jesus, the only King and Head of the Church. Amen.